So how many of you know who this guy is? You know, he, he interested me when I first saw him because he was actually born in the Philippines like me. That's one of the reasons. But he's arguably one of the best college quarterbacks in our history. Played in the NFL for a while, right? Playing AAA ball right now. Professional baseball for the New York Mets, I believe. You know his name? It's Tim Tebow, right? Remember he used to wear those black strips under his eyes and he would, he would put, Pastor Joe's going, who is this guy? <laughs> Tim Tebow, you know, when he take a knee like this, you're Tebowing. Just, okay, that's, uh, um, anyway, he, he used to put Bible verses on his eyes and one of them was from the, the chapter of Philippians that we're going to read, Philippians 4.13. Especially if you're a Christian athlete, that might be familiar to you. It's, there's lots of posters out there with him and, and all kinds of things that have this Bible verse, and maybe you know it. Put it up on the screen. I can do some things, many things, or all things. I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. And we're going to find out from Scripture that it's not about sports. And Tim Tebow knew that, but we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, we conclude our sermon series, Kingdom Minority. Kingdom Minority. And being a Christian, we are in God's kingdom, and that's the best news that I can share with you today. If you're a Christian, you're in God's kingdom, and you get all kinds of promises. And they're going to be fulfilled in the end, but yet it's, it's this series that we're called Kingdom Minority. And so hasn't it been true that God's people have been a minority on earth from the get-go, haven't we? I mean, seven billion now, two billion Right on earth and, and, and becoming a minority in the U.S. as well. But the reality is, not only are we a part of the kingdom of God, but we also live in the kingdom of this, of this world, right? We're kind of dual citizens. We live in the kingdom of God as he promises, as baptized believers, but we live in the kingdom of the world. And so we've been going and asking ourselves the question, what does the Lord require? What does love require of us, the minority kingdom, when it comes to politics, when it comes to social issues, how do Christians, you know, respond in this two-party system that we have? And I love how it says the kingdom of God, you know, we don't follow a donkey or an elephant, we follow a what? Oh boy. Were you watching this? This is on the video, right? We follow a what? A lamb. And that lamb is Jesus. You know, as Christians, we, how we think about politics, how we react socially, how we treat others who think differently than us, that's kind of been the theme of our series, and we kind of pretty much finished. Last week I did on Micah chapter uh, 6, verse 8. You remember what it says. What does the Lord... What's the next slide? What does the Lord... Oh, it's got answers for you already in there. Require. And remember we talked about require being not so much a requirement as it is a response to what God has done? I mean, because of us, of what God has done, then we are going to act justly. We are going to love mercy. We are going to walk humbly. And remember I talked about walking humbly requires two feet, right? The two feet of prayer, receiving God's word in affliction, but also speaking back to God in prayer. As a member of God's minority kingdom, right, this kingdom, we ought, to, we ought to be humble as it relates to what's happening in the world. And I talked a little bit about racism. I'll talk a little bit later in my, serve, in a, in my message about that. But, but really, I've asked you to repent, right, as, as I do, to repent when those times are like, yep, I have prejudice, God. I have biases. To humbly repent about that. I wondered if you thought about that this week. If you ask God, open my eyes to see where that might be in my life or in the, in the life of my family. Did anybody do that this week? 
this past week? If not, you still got time, right, to be able to just take a moment before you watch the, the, the game on television today, before you, you know, scroll on social media, you have time to say, God, help me, open my eyes, open my heart to see the topics that we've been discussing in our messages. So I want to leave kind of this series, this kingdom uh, uh, minority series, with having a foundation, sort of a worldview, just like Paul did in Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to understand more and more, just, not just Tim Tebow, but, but many others, why uh, Philippians, especially this passage, is near and dear to his heart. Open your Bibles, if you will, Philippians chapter 4. And as you do that, just like I did last week, give you a little bit of summary of why uh, Paul uh, just had in his heart these Philippians who were near and dear to him. Because a couple of, no more than a couple, a few things happened in Acts chapter 16. You don't have to go there because I'm going to summarize it. Go to Philippians 4. But in Acts 16, this is why Paul uh, loved these, these Christians so much. The very first person that came to believe in, in the city of Philippi was a woman by the name of Lydia, and her whole household was converted. In fact, the Bible says that uh, the God opened her heart to Paul's message, and their whole, her whole family was baptized. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, if you've ever had an opportunity where you shared the gospel, and somebody said, yes, I believe for the first time, and not only did they say, yes, I believe, but they were baptized, I mean, they are special to you. They have a special place in your heart, and, and you remember them with just fondness and, and, and love. That's what happened with Paul to Lydia. But not only that, he cast out a demon in a slave girl who was making money for a lot of business owners because she was a fortune teller, and it made the, fortune, it made the, the business owners so mad that they, they, created a, they gathered a mob, and Paul and his companion Silas, they, 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 they put him into prison. But this slave girl believed in Jesus. And not only that, then while he was in jail, God allowed him to convert, right? He, he didn't do the converting. The Holy Spirit did through the power of Paul's God's word through Paul. A Gentile jailer and his whole household becomes believers. And so now you have two families and a slave girl. That's the, the start of the, the, the church in Philippi. Last piece of information before we read Paul's letter is that while he's writing, he's in prison. In fact, the Bible records at least three times that Paul's in prison while he's writing these letters. So Philippians chapter 4, this is a little bit of a background so you understand it's a personal letter. He has a relationship with these dear people that he loves. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid. More than once I was in need. I've received the gifts you sent, he says in verse 18, and they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. 
That's our text. I want to leave kind of this kingdom minority series with some foundational basics from what Paul has learned. So I want to share three things today. How do we be content? How do we be content like Paul in all situations? What does it look like to have a view of community that includes all people? And lastly, the convictions that Paul had and that we have as Christians, what does that do for us as we interact with people in our midst? Being in God's kingdom formed the way Paul thought. He had a Christian world view. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus. That means that God would declare you to be righteous because of Jesus. That was his most important thing. I want to ask you, is that your most important thing? Is Jesus the foundation and center of your life? Or is your spouse? Or is your job? Or is it your children? Or whatever it might be. And I'm preaching to myself every time I'm up here, right? Because I could say, yes, I want Jesus to be center. At the same time, do my actions communicate that? Well, not always, right? For Paul, after his conversion, it was all about Jesus. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he writes these words, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, be part, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So as I read this passage from Philippians, the first thing that jumps out at me from verse 11 is his words, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I mean, that's profound to me. It challenged me to wonder, can I say that? Can you say that? Could you say that if you were in prison? I mean, think about it. He's writing from a Roman prison. He's got nothing. And yet he writes these words. Think about that. Maybe you've been, maybe, maybe you can put yourself in, in prison right now, right? You've been innocently accused or something, maybe you didn't, for something you didn't do. Or maybe you did do something, but you're in jail. Could you write, I'm content? That's hard. I mean, most Americans, even, you know, as we live this life of, of all our needs are met pretty much all the time, right? We, and we, compared to the rest of the world, we live in luxury as one of the richest countries in the world. Yet, we yearn for better, don't we? For more, for more money, for more time, for more recognition, for more status, from, from, from our peers, from whatever it is. We want the new and the shiny latest and greatest, right? And then when we get it, does it bring us ultimate contentment? Maybe for five minutes, maybe for a day, but it doesn't, right? We don't ever reach a place where, ah, I'm content. Nope. But yet Paul says in the scriptures he learned the secret to contentment, whether he's well-fed, whether he's hungry, whether he's living in plenty, or whether he's living in want. And there are plenty of times in his life where he was living in plenty. I mean, Paul was like at the top of the Jewish group, right? I mean, he was the guy named what? Saul, who was persecuting Christians. Do you remember that? I mean, he had everything he wanted, right? He was at the top. And yet, when God met him on that road to Damascus, wham! What happens now? I said this in last service. If you're not a Christian yet, please talk to me after. <laughs> not every Christian is going to experience what Paul does, but what happens to Paul after he becomes a Christian? It's outlined in 2 Corinthians 11. You might want to make a note of that. That he's 
numerous times put in jail. He's whipped. He's stoned. He's shipwrecked. He endures sleepless nights. He goes without food. He shivers in the cold. And the list goes on and on in 2 Corinthians 11. I think more than any of us here, he's experienced that far end of the spectrum of living in want. But yet he learned the secret. How did he learn? And what's the secret? I want to know that. Do you want to know that? Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things. Paul can face anything. He can do anything. He can be grateful in any life circumstances. How? Because Jesus strengthens him. We look to the one who gives that kind of power. That kind of power that says it's in every one of us who is Christians. The one who loved us so much that he left his place in heaven to come down and live a perfect life. Take the sin that we deserve, right? Take the penalty that we ought to have. But gives us mercy and grace. The one who endured that pain on the cross, the one while he was dying on the cross thought of us. And not only do we think about the one who died on the cross, but the one who didn't stay dead. The one who walked out of that tomb on the third day, rose again from the dead. Amen? That's this out-of-the-world power that we have. That's the strength that that Paul's uh, coming from and, and, and receiving. And that's the strength that Christians would walk in as well. And I ask myself, and I challenge all of you to ask yourself, where do you try to draw your strength? Isn't it so much that the the first we try to draw it from ourselves? To pull up our bootstraps, right? And just grin and bear it and let's do this. Or maybe it's from the circumstances in our life or from money or from status or from beauty or good health or skills and abilities. The list can go on and on. And yet we think either consciously or subconsciously, if I can just find it within me to be strong, if I have the right people around me, if they treat me well, if everything's going my way, then I'll be content. I mean, with that mindset and the afflictions that are happening in this world, how far is that going to get us? I mean, if anything, what 2020 has taught us, and I think, I'm just speaking for me, anything that has taught me that everything can and will let us down. Right? I mean, everything is in flux. We can't be sure of anything. I mean, what, what, what's stable? I mean, we're one of the most critical and dramatic presidential elections, right, in my lifetime at least. COVID is still there. It's bringing damage to, to lots of places. Racial tensions are high. Our economy is fragile. Our afflictions, like I said last week, inside and outside of us. How do we find the strength to endure? How can we be content in all situations? Tim Tebow, the son of a missionary, really in the Philippines, he he knew and wanted to share it with the world. It wasn't about sports. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen? wasn't talking about sports. He, I mean, and when we think about that and we read it in that sports setting, though, we can kind of misapply it. We can say, well, you know what? If I, be- just, if I just believe in God, well, I can do all things, but it's really not about that. Not at all, because it doesn't depend on your success or your failure that we would be humbly relying on the one who we belong to, and that's going to get us through everything. Paul's Christian worldview I mean, it helped him through all his sufferings. And that's really the kingdom foundation. 
That's the first in, 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 in what I want to leave you with in this kingdom minority. That's the reality that we have as Christians, contentment by drawing on Jesus' strength. The next one I want to talk about is community. Community. As the, the kingdom minority, and for Paul, how did it impact how he treated people? I mean, think about the verses, that the summary that I gave you in Acts 16 and the people who made up Paul's first community. Who's the first convert in Philippians? It was a woman. And sadly, women weren't respected or given equal treatment. And embedded in that culture is slavery and racial struggles as well, human equality issues. I think worse than what we experience today, yet the first person to respond to Paul's message is Lydia. Who's the second? Even lower on that social status rung. It's a slave girl. And then after that, it's a Gentile. I mean, Jews were prejudiced, were, were racist, if you will, among, and the, they had this elitist attitude, like nobody except the Jews is good enough. Yet a Gentile jailer becomes a believer. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God changed how Paul saw people. It shaped the way he considered what would be part of his community. And being in God's kingdom, it means we know that Jesus loves all people, that he died for all, that there's no difference between what's greater or lesser by, by ethnicity or culture or clothes we wear or upper or lower or middle class or the language we speak or the color of our skin, or the customs that we have, our kingdom minority community is all-inclusive. Each person having dignity and worth, each person receiving God's grace and his mercy, the same. As Christians in God's kingdom, we set the example. We set what it means to have a community that's unified with all believers. I love the way... Uh, St. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. It's on the screen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How do we apply that to racial tension in our day? Jesus is our country's only hope for peace. Amen? He destroys those barriers, the dividing walls. Remember, God didn't create so many different races. He created one race, the human race, because really, we're from one set of parents. Who are they? Adam and Eve. And after the flood from Noah and his family, I mean, all of us are either from Shem, Japheth, or Ham, one of Noah's sons. We're all the same. We all have God's image in us. And so as we see this strife that racism brings and, and racial injustice brings, as you see it in social media, as you see it on the news, people can get very defensive. They might even deny that there's this systematic problem in our country. Some may claim, you know what, I don't have a president, uh, presidential, president, prejudicial, prejudicial bone in my body. Well, I wish I could say that. But honestly, my past experiences, the, the television programs I watch, the messages that we, we take in, I mean, I have to confess, I'm tainted. I have presuppositions. I have assumptions that are wrong. I might not have overt racism, but, you know, it might be implicit. And that's the same with our society, whether that's intentional or unintentional. In many facets of this society, there's this implicit bias. So one side gets defensive, and then on the other side, 
right? There's others that kind of find satisfaction in exposing racism. You know, they want to point the finger, right? You can't say all lives matter. You got to say black lives matter. And we do it in such a way that would shame and degrade others. But as a kingdom minority view, as Christians, we desire to confront the sin of racism, yet we do it by repenting in our own lives first and in a loving way come to have dialogue with others, others that are our neighbors, even others that could be our enemies. Because to feel and to act superior because I'm part of a certain race or ethnicity, right? And because of the color of my skin, that is opposite of what we've been studying this whole time from Micah 6.8. No, God says we are to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. You know, this American uh, law enforcement, I say American, the U.S. law enforcement system is being called out in our media right now. I get that. But I want you to think a little bit broader. Doesn't racism permeate all of our social institutions? I mean, doesn't it? The criminal justice system, right? The public school system, the housing sector, higher education, banking, finance, business, all of it. So as a kingdom minority people, we need to care about all those afflictions around us. And as people who are united in community have been given the strength that we could be content in all situations because we, we draw our, our strength from Jesus, those are the two convictions that we have. So I just used the word for the last one. Right? It's, it's not only do we have contentment, not only do we have community, but we have conviction. And what's that mean, to have that kind of conviction like Paul had? Remember, he's, he's writing from a prison cell. He's, he's writing at a time where Jesus isn't Lord, but Caesar is Lord. And he's in this prison where in a Roman prison system, you don't get three square meals. You don't. You don't get clothes or shelter. If you get any of that, it's because family and friends come by to support you and visit you and provide those items. So in verse 10, if you go back with me, Philippians 4, look at verse 10. It, it, he writes, you showed your concern, your renewed concern, and you had an opportunity to show it. Verse 14 says that they shared in his troubles. Verse 15 and 16, that they gave financially to his missionary ministry. And he gave, they gave aid. And so in verse 18, Paul's grateful that the, for the gifts that, he, that they sent. I mean, they would be willing to sacrifice. They were so dedicated and convicted that they would walk 1,200 miles from the city of Philippi to Rome to support Paul. Taking risks, making sacrifices, their belonging to this community, this minority kingdom, gives them contentment, gives them a sense of community, and it helps them with their convictions that they would give to those in need in the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, convictions come from what we believe about what's right and wrong. They come and they help us move us into action. That's why Pastor Joe's going to talk about in his four series, how do we do that? What do our convictions mean? How we live a life bringing Jesus into these relationships? Looking forward to your time talking to us. Convictions, they motivate us, not, not only uh, in, in the community, but politically and socially to overcome these problems. I want you to think about the civil rights movement in the 60s. Remember the pastor, Martin Luther King? He worked tirelessly because of his biblical conviction to advance equal treatment, right, for all people in this country. There are many social afflictions that plague us, and God convicts us, doesn't he? Individuals to act in a variety of ways and arenas to get involved and to help. I pray, 
I pray that the lordship of Jesus in our life will embolden us to pursue a church, a city, a country in which racial differences are celebrated as a reflection of the image of God. Where we're all value, right? Where, where, where we value all life. And what does that mean? Where our convictions cause us to oppose euthanasia and abortion? Where our convictions about what God says about marriage being between one woman and one man is held strong? Where our convictions about what God's standard is for law and maintaining order and form our voting? Where our convictions cause us to vote for leaders who will put judges in place who will uphold biblical principles? Yet as a kingdom minority... How do we treat others who, who disagree with us? We act justly. We love mercy. We walk humbly, especially those neighbors who we might even deem to be our enemies. So, an 18-year-old woman named Kashia, Kashia Thomas. I don't know if you know that name. In 1996, she lived in Ann Arbor. She's an 18-year-old Christian. And there was a branch of the Ku Klux Klan that was going to hold a rally in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, so diversified, right? And as a community, they heard about this, and so a counter-rally was going to form and, and to protest it, to form and, and really just say, KKK, you are not welcome here. And so if you can imagine this scene, there's a tense scene, there's armed, you know, uh, police officers in riot gear, right, both sides uh, yelling at each other. Suddenly a woman with a megaphone shouts this, there's a Klansman in our crowd. And sure enough, in the middle of the crowd, protesting racism, there's a man wearing a Confederate flag, has Nazi tattoos on his arm. He was chased, and then what happens, of course, mob mentality breaks out. You know, people are hitting them with the sticks of the protesters, the kicking, kicking him and all that kind of stuff. And in the middle of this, this 18-year-old girl, Keshia Thomas, an African-American Christian, jumps on top of him to shield him from the attacks, lays her life on the line to protect the man who hated her because of the color of her skin. You see, the gospel of Jesus shaped her view of community. She was there to protest peacefully. It convicted her to go and to be socially active, but then the Holy Spirit convicted her even more to do this bold and this right thing, sacrificing herself. The crowd stopped, and that man was protected. The great story. And I pray that as we close this Kingdom Minority Series, your convictions will move you to action, especially in two weeks. We vote would you vote your biblical convictions? If you don't know or are unsure of what the local, state, or federal candidates value, all you got to do is Google it, right? Just Google Christian Voter Guide. Google Biblical Voter. You can find a breakdown where the candidates fall. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a kingdom minority. God calls each one of us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Thank God our eternal problem has been solved. My sin and your sin put on the cross. We get to celebrate that week in and week out. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can go forth out of this place and bring Jesus into every relationship. Before we do that, we're going to find strength from Jesus himself. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion. Now, 
I forgot to do this in, my, in, in the beginning of the message, but if you did not receive communion elements, would you raise your hands high? Our hospitality team can come by. If you didn't receive those again, uh, we're going to celebrate uh, and as what we believe to be when we celebrate together that it is both bread and wine and body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you believe that, that you're a sinner and you need Jesus, you are welcome to receive it. Would you bow your heads? And I'm going to lead us through some confession moments, and I'm just going to kind of read Psalm 51. If you ever need to say, hey, how do I confess? Read Psalm 51. I'm going to do that corporately. So close your eyes, bow your heads. God, have mercy on us. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions, wash away all our iniquity, cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgression and our sin is always before you and against you, and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Cleanse us, Lord, that we might be clean. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Don't cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of our salvation. God, your word says that the sacrifices that you like are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So in these moments, hear our brokenness, God. Hear our sin. Take them away. good news of the gospel is when you confess that to God, he says your sins are no more. You're forgiven in Jesus' name.